0: An interview with National Magazine Award-winning writer and editor Andrea Bennett. A reading by award-winning photographer and writer Jesse Winter. And a quick update from MaxBC Executive Director Sylvia Skeen. That's today on iHeart Magazines. The podcast from the Magazine Association of BC. Sharing the love of making and reading West Coast magazines. This episode is all about anti-oppressive editorial practices. Our first guest today is Andrea Bennett, who is a National Magazine award-winning writer and a senior editor at the TAI. Their most recent book, Like a Boy But Not a Boy, an essay collection, was a CBC Books pick for the top Canadian Nonfiction of the year and one of Straddle's best queer books of 2020. Andrea has worked as an editor in book and magazine publishing for over 10 years. Andrea also partnered with us on two anti-oppressive copy editing workshops in March this year, which we'll also talk about in the interview. Welcome, Andrea, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. My first question to you is, what is anti-oppressive copy editing, and why is it important to have an anti-oppressive house style guide?
1: So the idea of anti-oppressive copy editing is essentially rooted in the idea that a lot of our structures are are oppressive in nature. So um, one way you could think about this would be through, a lot of our structures are racist in uh, in nature, sexist, transphobic. The idea of an anti-oppressive practice first is about recognizing those structural and systemic barriers and isms and perspectives and then figuring out ways to deconstruct them a bit. So that might be realizing that your articles tend to be centering whiteness, like writing to a white audience, and then deciding that you are going to change that approach and change that perspective. And having a style guide is important because then you're thinking about a lot of these issues in a structural way and in a specific way. And so when the reporting or the article comes across your desk, you are somewhat versed in these questions and can just have that lens on your work as you're going through it. There might be compromises that crop up sometimes when you decide to prioritize something over consistency, but then it is also an opportunity, yeah, to evaluate your style rule around that particular area.
0: This also kind of relates to the nothing about us without us adage, which we also spent some time on during our workshop. Yeah, essentially nothing
1: about us without us refers to, it's very basic, including um, sources in your reporting when the reporting is about that group of people. And also it can also mean assigning stories to a writer that is in the group that's being written about because they may bring a different perspective and wealth of lived experience to that topic. For example, again, when it comes to disability, it would mean you need to have sources in that article who are disabled. Having parents of disabled children is doesn't meet the bar there. But I think just to sort of take that a step further, Just because a person has a lived experience doesn't mean that they're necessarily an expert in the area or, you know, an activist. For example, I'm bipolar too. And I also very recently found out that I'm somewhat hard of hearing. And I would, I do feel comfortable writing and speaking about um, mental health and mental illness. I do not feel comfortable speaking about being hard of hearing when it comes to sort of extrapolating from my own very limited experience so it's not just about like ticking a box and saying okay because there historically has been a lot of reporting about people that does not involve them at all and in that case it's not actually just an equity issue it's also about the strength of a piece
0: and that also makes one rethink what kind of writers to commission for what kind of pieces how would you Adopt an anti oppressive lens when it comes to an editor's relationship with their writer?
1: So, I guess there are two things that I would want to highlight. The first thing is, you know, trying to establish a good working relationship with a writer, because if you don't have that in place, it's really hard to do anything else. And the second thing I wanted to highlight maybe you want to assign a piece about a particular topic to a person who has lived experience in that area. But I would also just warn against or ask people to be conscious of the fact that just because, for example, I'm a bipolar person, I'm not just going to be writing about bipolar issues or mental health issues. I am a whole realized person with like a broad other group of interests. When you're assigning pieces to people think about those other interests and don't just sort of pigeonhole them based on, oh, this person really fits. Like we don't have that many Asian Canadian writers that are writing for us. Here's an Asian topic, I'll ask them to cover that and not anything else. Just think about everybody as their whole, full, realized selves when you're you're thinking about assigning work.
0: Let's take editorial work a step further beyond Working with writers, just in terms of your editorial work in general, what are some key things you keep in mind every day?
1: My approach is just be thorough, be thoughtful, be fair, be interesting. And I would argue that that, you know, it's a framework into which an anti-oppressive approach fits.
0: Moving on from your editorial practice to your writing practice. In your essay collection, like a boy but not a boy, you talk about navigating life, parenthood, mental health as a non-binary person. What was the process like of embodying anti-oppressive values in the writing and editing of your book?
1: That's a good question.
0: I feel like with writing,
1: it's a creative process. In first draft stage, I'm not explicitly thinking about X, Y, or Z exactly. Like I'm I'm trying to Craft an argument, use narrative, get something on the page essentially. And it's only in the sort of second draft and editing stage that I'm critically evaluating that writing and seeing if there are areas that I don't actually fully agree with an argumentation line that I've taken myself down, or it feels like it's missing something, or it could be deepened. It's not a draft one thing consciously, but it really is at this draft two, draft three editorial stage that 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 lens specifically comes in for me.
0: That was Andrea Bennett, a National Magazine Award-winning writer and a senior editor at the TAI. If you want to learn more about Andrea and their work, you can visit their website, andreabennett.ca. iHeart Magazine's podcast our second guest on this episode is Jesse Winter Jesse Winter is an award-winning photographer and writer his work has appeared in The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, The National Post and elsewhere today he will be reading his 2021 article in the Thai photographing beyond needle in puddle which is a great illustration of anti-oppressive editorial practices in journalism
2: In April 2020, in an alley just off East Hastings Street in Vancouver, an angry voice called out from behind me. Hey, what are you doing with those cameras? I turned around to see two men and a woman sitting together, leaning against a wall. Several naloxone kits were laid out on the ground alongside needles and other drug paraphernalia. At the time, the first COVID-19 wave was cresting across the province and the rate of fatal overdoses from a toxic street drug supply was rocketing skyward. I work for a news agency, I replied, walking towards the trio. I left my cameras dangling at my sides. I'm working on a story about the new safer supply program. One of the three stood up and stepped towards me, the tension in his shoulders easing. He said someone else had just come through the alley, filming everything on a phone without saying a word, and it pissed him off. So what's the story you're working on? The guy asked. I explained a little more about the issue and that I was looking for people who had accessed the safer supply prescription narcotic program or might want to. I asked if I could make a few photos of the three of them. Sure, go ahead. The man said. People need to see this shit. I spent a few minutes making pictures and chatting with them. Said thanks and then headed off. As I was leaving, the woman called out, "Thanks for asking first she said. The past couple of years have seen unprecedented levels of anxiety, pain, heartache, and trauma across the province. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, 2020 and 2021 both saw dizzying spikes in fatal overdoses and there's no sign of it slowing down. Pandemic restrictions put immense pressures on communities already struggling with a housing shortage, a toxic drug supply, and a mental health care system that leaves too many people floundering in crisis. It's said that seeing is believing. As photojournalists, it's our job to document these struggles and help the public better understand them. But as these intertwined crises drag on, I wonder whether we're doing a good enough job. There's no shortage now of imagery about overdoses, and there are huge piles of photos of homelessness, tent cities, and street disorder, yet chronic misconceptions about all these issues persist and may even be worsening. We need to start asking ourselves what we're seeing and by extension, what we're believing. This past year was worse than most as the twin forces of pandemic restrictions and bureaucratic timidity combined to restrict access to overdose prevention sites almost entirely. Shut out of many of the places that the public needs to see, photojournalists are forced to make do with what's available in public, out on the street, or rely on recycled generic images of tents, needles, and pills. The problem with this is that it's too easy, too alluring. Photographers can cruise down East Hastings Street, taking photos on the sly with a telephoto lens without ever having to speak to anyone. We've all done it at one point or another, but it's based on the misguided belief that photographing an end result of broken social systems is a good enough way to represent the issue as a whole. It reduces an entire community to what can be seen from the sidewalk. It also robs people of agency and control over how their images are used and where. Those of us who are housed always have a refuge we can return to where we have a legally protected expectation of privacy. Photojournalists can't just peer into backyards or living room windows. But for people experiencing homelessness, the public park might be their backyard. A doorway might be their living room. People forced into public spaces by circumstances largely beyond their control deserve the same expectation of privacy as everyone else, and slyly snapping their photo with a telephoto lens so they can be reduced to a symbol for a story does a disservice to them and to the reader. Most of this happens not because photojournalists are lazy, unethical, or malicious. It happens because it can feel like there's no alternative. Deadline pressure, a lack of access, and dwindling resources have left many newsrooms stuck in a quote, make-do mentality and visual journalism is often the last need considered or the first thing to be cut. As a local reporter friend once told me, for every deeply reported human story, there are a dozen pictureless government press releases, academic reports, or other news items that have to be written up and published online. And that creates immense pressure on newsrooms to find something, anything, to put at the top of their stories. But as photo departments across the country have been gutted, the visual literacy needed to make the right call has plummeted, replaced by the belief that in most cases any photo will do. One example Karen Ward points to is an image that she calls needle in puddle. It's a CBC archive photo of a hypodermic needle in a rain-filled gutter. It's been around since at least 2018 and was created amid a public debate about the need for more public syringe collection boxes. But since then, it has been recycled dozens of times for stories about the overdose crisis in general, and in particular, the monthly overdose death updates. As Ward points out, there are several problems with this. First, an increasing percentage of overdose deaths result not from injecting drugs, but from inhaling them. Reusing a needle photo skews the public understanding of the causes. It's also important to know whether needles found discarded on the street were used to inject narcotics, insulin, or life-saving naloxone, and the distinction matters. Second, for Ward, the photo has an obvious tone. When it appears under a headline of another record number of deaths, the implication is one of hopelessness, she says. It's not the death Olympics, Ward says. It shouldn't be about breaking records, but Needle and Puddle says, this is just how it is. It's a cliche that's empty of meaning. We need to remember that these are stories about ongoing public policy failures. They are not about the morality of people struggling in broken systems, and they certainly aren't entertainment. As Ward told me, the Downtown east side is not your backdrop for Instagram selfies. These stories are, at their heart, human. By finding and showcasing the humanity and complexity of the people impacted by these ongoing failures, we can help keep the focus where it needs to be. In order to do this, photos need to be treated not as adornments for stories, but as integral parts of them. When used appropriately, photography has an incredible power to connect people, to make things real for readers, to make people stop and pay attention. There's another idiom that I lean on often. If your photos aren't good enough, you're not close enough. I take this to be more metaphorical than literal. A good photo doesn't just depict what a person looks like, it reveals their humanity.
0: Welcome, Jesse. Thanks for reading for us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Your article is about the harmful effects of dehumanizing imagery when it comes to people experiencing homelessness and those who use drugs. What prompted you to cover the story from this angle?
2: I decided that I I felt the need to write this piece after having moved to Vancouver in uh, 2018, and I worked for... The Star Metro newspaper for about two and a half years and during that time did a lot of work in the downtown east side the toxic drug crisis is something that is very close to my heart and it's something that I've wanted to to try and help address through my work for a long time and during my work in the downtown east side particularly over those sort of two and a half years I saw a continuation of patterns in terms of media representation and imagery around those issues that I'd seen before. like It happens everywhere. It's not just in Vancouver, it happens in Toronto. Anytime that the news photographers or the newspapers and news outlets cover those issues, they often rely on the same kinds of kind of cliched imagery. And I started to notice the harms that were caused by that kind of repetitive use of stigmatizing imagery, file imagery, that like out of context, things like that, the stuff that I address in the article. And it it just really started to bother me, particularly because I know there's a better way to operate. We can do that work and it's important work and we can do it in a way that doesn't perpetuate harm. And I honestly just got a little frustrated and felt the need to, to say something about how that stuff happens. When I was reporting out the story the first time, I actually tried to figure out exactly how many times that image has been used it's been used so many times that it's almost impossible to track basically the only every time they do an update on the overdose death numbers from the coroner's office it's that photo that goes at the top I mean I get it like I know the person who made that photograph when it was created it wasn't a problematic photograph it was created for for a specific purpose for a specific story that was important and had context and seeing it just like recycled over and over again is what strips it from meaning.
0: What was the editorial process for the story like? How did anti-oppression figure into it?
2: The editorial process was actually fairly straightforward. The Taiyi in particular has a a pretty long history of doing their work with an anti-oppressive lens. I know from friends that I have who work there and other work that I've done with them, that's an important thing and an important lens that they apply to pretty much all of their work. It's also something that myself and former editor um, Robin Smith, before she left, I had spent a lot of time talking about. When I first started freelancing, we had a, a meeting where we talked about the kind of work that I wanted to do and how covering the downtown east side, what that should look like, how we could do it, and so it wasn't so much that there was an editorial process or this piece so much as it is i think their editorial process overall does a really good job of thinking about and and addressing those kinds of concerns in a holistic sense and this piece basically kind of fit very well into that
0: speaking of uh thinking through issues in a holistic sense seeing the humans in the story is an important part of being a journalist and writer how can one nurture this attitude
2: i think for me I'm somebody who's always tried to find my stories down low on the ground. Uh, My wife likes to talk about there being sort of different types of journalists. And some people find their stories up high at the 30,000 foot level, looking through policy documents, looking at government behavior, holding government to account, and then looking to find people and human stories that reflect the larger issue that they're talking about. And my approach has kind of been the opposite, where I try and find the people first, and sort of let them tell me what the story is, not dictate the story, obviously. But my research process, I think, is rooted in a more on the ground perspective. And I also think in th- with this issue and in this piece in particular, one of the things that I find really troubling about the way news photography depicts these issues is that there's a tension between, needing to recognize people's privacy and not being exploitative and also trying to illustrate the issues. And I think where news photography falls down a lot is by taking the shortcut of reducing and not using anonymous people, images that don't show someone's identity and just reducing them to a symbol. And so for me, it's really important that the reader see and meet and get to know the human beings who are impacted by this stuff. It's just, you have to do that in a very careful way, making sure that those people have agency, that they're reflected as complete people, not just like reduced stereotypes. The one other thing that I wish I had included more in this article is the impact of the loss of visual editors in newsrooms. And I think to Andrea's points about the need to be anti oppressive in copy editing, the people who have the visual literacy to handle photographs and imagery in an anti oppressive way is, I think, really, really lacking. There are virtually no photo editors left anymore. It's crazy. Like, there's virtually no staff photojournalists left either, but worse than that, I think, is the loss of visual experts in newsrooms and i'm not sure what we do about it
0: that was jesse winter if you want to learn more about jesse and his work you can visit his website jessewinter.net what's happening in the magazine industry around pc and beyond max pc executive director sylvia scheme has got the
3: beat Thanks, Asna. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Beat. St. Joseph Media has released its 2022 Media and Marketing Trends Report, which touches on such aspects as workplace positivity and worker retention, meaningful buying choices over materialism as a consumer trend, and yes, TikTok. If you would like to read the report, feel free to visit St. Joseph Media's website at stjoseph.com. I understand some of you have heard from the Canada Periodical Fund about your aid, publishers or special measures for journalism funding. If you have applied for either program but haven't received a notice, I recommend contacting a CPF program officer soon. Next up at CPF is its Business Innovation Program, which offers funding to eligible Canadian print and digital periodicals. Business innovation's objectives are to support innovation and the use of new technologies  • Strengthen a periodical's financial viability • Increase access to the market, including export markets • Encourage the development of the next generation of Canadian periodical publishing professionals • and Enhance the diversity of titles and Canadian editorial content available to readers and advertisers I cannot stress strongly enough, the sooner you can submit a well-thought-out and researched business innovation application the more likely your magazine will be approved for funding, if it's eligible. If you would like to explore export options, we should have videos from our February Export Intensive series published within a couple of weeks on our YouTube channel, Magazines BC. That's Magazines BC. Mags BC also plans to hold a webinar April 20th with Jose Schenck and Stephen Birds from CPF presenting the main aspects of the business innovation program and answering your questions. Also coming up is advanced crowdfunding strategies for magazines on April 26th. Ian McKenzie, an educator and filmmaker who has run many successful campaigns, will be teaching this workshop. In other news, Creative BC has released its 2020 to 2021 impact report. And it provides a great overview of the magazine publishing industry in BC, as well as other cultural industries. For example, it reports that our industry contributed 107 million in total GDP and almost 800 full time equivalent jobs to BC's economy in 2020. Nationally, our industry contributed 1.34 billion in direct output to the Canadian economy in 2020, despite the pandemic. In the US, magazine audiences actually rose 50 million to 1.56 billion, with those games being mostly for mobile and video platforms. No surprise there. According to the 2021 MPA Magazine Media Factbook, 60 new print magazines were also launched in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic, with 20 of them being special interest magazines and another 11 offering content on crafts, puzzles, and hobbies. I'm sure the number of new digital magazines launching was even higher, but these can be much harder to find, much less count. And that's it for The Beat. Back to you, Asna. That's Max BC Executive
0: Director Sylvia Skeen, with opportunities for you to learn more about the magazine industry across the province and country. That's it for this episode of iHeart Magazines. If you want to learn more about what you heard, head to maxbc.com. You can also find us on Facebook at magazinesbc, on Twitter at maxbc, and on Instagram also at maxbc. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. It helps other folks find the show. iHeart Magazines is made possible thanks to financial support from the Government of Canada with additional funding provided by Creative BC. This episode was hosted by me, Asna Sheikh. Production guidance by Sarah Hoyles. Theme music by Yuri Semchishin of Koma Media. Next time on iHeart Magazines, magazine export pro Regina Eric from Eric Global Works discusses the most exciting exporting opportunities for Canadian magazine publishers. Thanks for listening.